Hello everyone, I hope you're all keeping fit and healthy and all your family members are keeping well as well. Welcome back to another episode of 20 Minute Fitness. I thoroughly hope you're also enjoying the home workouts I've given you. I've been following them and I'm definitely finding them a challenge because I don't really do that much calisthenics work. So it's um, a good change to my training and obviously I'm trying to adhere to the social distancing. So just do my bodyweight stuff at home. Uh, Today we have one of the co-hosted episodes and quite a special episode today because not only are we talking about the coronavirus and giving some more information on it and how we can give ourselves the best chances of not contracting the virus but I'm also hosting the episode with my dad. My dad has been a general practitioner in the UK for a number of years. He also used to be a health commissioner and I'll let him introduce himself more in further depth when we get into the interview but he gives a lot of very useful information that will help you ensure that your hygiene's on point, that you are giving yourself the best chance to not contract the virus and that you're obviously keeping yourself fit and healthy as well. So definitely stick around till the end. Uh, Unfortunately, I didn't have my microphone for the actual interview, which is annoying, but the audio quality should not be too bad. So I apologize in advance for that. Hopefully you'll all find it okay. Before we do dive into the episode, a massive thank you to our sponsors, Shape. Shape are building ShapeScale, which is a 3D body scanning scale. So you'll step onto the device and then a robotic arm, it spins all around your body. And whilst it's doing that, it's capturing all sorts of body data. So that's metrics like your body fat percentage, your lean muscle mass, and your muscle girth measurements and then via the shape app as well you'll also see a photorealistic 3d avatar of your body so a real avatar of your body to understand how you're visually making progress as well so it marries the quantitative data and your visuals as well so definitely check it out it will really help you with your fitness progress and tracking it all and you can see it by checking out shapescale.com but for now let's get into the show with my dad lots of value given to you on this one so i really hope you enjoy Hello, Davey. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Well, thank you very much indeed, Charlie. It's uh, been a busy day at work today. I'm Dr. David Farmer. I'm Charlie's father. I've been a physician for 35 years now, 20 years in the military as a hospital and doctor and family physician. I'm currently working as a general practitioner in UK parlance or family physician would be the closest in America. I've additionally held roles as a health commissioner for a large population, but I'm now largely working on the front line, seeing patients day to day during the epidemic. So obviously the topic today is centred around coronavirus. I think everyone is a little uncertain of the future, how serious it really is, what actually is coronavirus. Could you sort of introduce this topic for us and give our listeners a bit more information, the basics really? Indeed. I mean, there's a huge amount of uncertainty. I work with a group of nine other physicians at the moment, and it's fair to say that that we're quite stunned by what's going on and slightly uncertain. However, the the coronavirus is just another virus. There's, There's a large number of this family of viruses that we've been familiar with for many years. And in general, they've caused a a mild or moderate upper respiratory tract infection, a a mild cough or a mild cold. We know that two previous types of the coronavirus have caused about 30% of colds or or upper respiratory tract infections, and two others have been associated with a pneumonia, which is uh, an infection of the lung, and also something called bronchiolitis that predominantly affects babies. Uh, They they develop a cold-like symptom and then very rapidly become wheezy and start 
start breathing very quickly. But three times in the 21st century, coronavirus outbreaks have occurred in populations as a whole. And these have largely emerged from animal reservoirs. And that's notably pigs, camels, bats and cats. In late 2002, the SARS-CoV-1 virus appeared, but had largely gone by 2004. And in 2012, we had MERS, which emerged mainly in the Middle East, and it's still in circulation in camels over there. But as we'll know, we've heard many, many times on the news now, 2019, the SARS-CoV-2, or as we tend to call it COVID-19, emerged from Wuhan uh, in Hubei province, China. And this does seem to be very different. It is one of the members of these large families that we've dealt with before, but it seems to be an entirely new entity within that group. And we're learning about it all the time. I, I would say that everything that I say today is our best estimate at the moment, but our knowledge is uh, changing literally day by day. Our early estimates that each person infected would infect a further 2.2 people. So if we make the math simple, one person has got it, they would infect two, it would then become four, eight, 16, and then very, very exponentially grow. But that that figure of exponential growth is a factor both of the virulence and the ease of spread of the virus, which is largely dictated by our own social behaviours. Certainly, the, the case numbers and the death numbers of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, dwarf that of the SARS-CoV-1 and MERS. In fact, I've just updated my information and the latest date I have is that there's 460,000 cases worldwide with deaths of about 21,000, 20,842. Our early estimate said that in cases, about 4.8% of people died. But we actually don't know the true mortality rate because we don't know accurately how many cases there are. So, for example, if, if you had five people, five cases out of 100 that died, the mortality rate would be 5%. But if it was five cases out of 1,000 people, but we didn't know that there were a 1,000, it would be 0.5%. Probably the best evidence we have was from that cruise liner, the, the Diamond Princess. Yeah. Now, everybody, I think it was 697 people were died, uh, tested on that ship. And it seems that the mortality rate of overall was probably about 0.5%. So that sounds a lot less scary than the 4.8%. However, we've got to remember that that's probably five times worse than flu, seasonal flu that we've been seeing over the years. And I guess what we do know is that the risks of death increase with age. There seems to be a link in people with blood pressure and also obesity. What, what's strange to me, I worked as a respiratory physician years ago, was that it doesn't seem to be particularly picking out the people with pre-existing lung disease, especially chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. There are the associations with, with that and diabetes as well. Other strange things are that there's the primary infection, but only a smaller number go on to develop the, the sort of acute severe respiratory distress. And it Maybe that that's linked to some immune phenomenon. And in fact, there are some interesting differences emerging between the sexes, so men are more likely to get severe disease, and in fact, with your blood group. 
So blood group A seems to be easier to infect than blood group O. So there's a lot of work going around at the moment about sort of genetic differences and how our cells vary. But that science is very early on, so I'd probably better not comment on that. Do you think, just to, just to jump in here, obviously we just mentioned then that we, we're, not, we're not really sure how many cases there actually are because obviously in the UK and many other countries that we don't have the facilities and the resources to be testing every single person. So obviously that in that case, we won't know the true figures, but also there are people that are asymptomless. Um, I just wanted to ask, is that predominantly down to biological individuality or are there other reasons that you might be asymptomless uh, or, or otherwise show symptoms? I, I think it's it's too early to say, Charlie. I mean, I agree with you entirely that you you get cases of 95-year-old people who have a mild cold and cough, and then you see people who are in the prime of health, and they suddenly get quite severe disease. There's some very early science going on about the expression of uh, certain cell surface receptors. So if you imagine the coronavirus as looking like a ball with spiky little projections on it, mm-hmm. this this glycoprotein spike seems to bind to a receptor in the lung. And that receptor is variably expressed in different people. So it may well be that that the severity of the disease is somehow linked to that. However, at the moment, our science is not exact enough to say that. And just uh, moving on from that as well, we've recently heard that one of the other symptoms is a lack of smell and taste and sort of a sort of dampening down of the senses, whilst we obviously previously knew straight away almost about the respiratory problems that it could cause. Do you think that, or is it too too early to say that we might see future uh, symptoms emerge as well? I think it's very difficult to say. The core symptoms, which tend to occur around about 2 to 14 days after exposure to the virus, a fever, cough and shortness of breath. But there have been other reports of crashing headache being fairly common, a vague tummy upset with loose stools and the lack of sense of smell. In, in general terms, viral infections tend to have a predilection for one sort of tissue, maybe the lung. But there are many, many viruses that prevent, present perhaps as a temperature fever and slight cough and then go on to, to produce, say, a diarrhea or something like that. So it's, it's more a whole body infection. The lack of sense of smell is puzzling. If people get something like sinusitis, you can see that the smell receptors would be blocked off by the mucus. I honestly don't have any further information on whether this is specific to the virus or not. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, just before as well, you give us some, some further information. I was also interested on your thoughts on what well, we're seeing a lot of people, obviously, people sort of taking one or two standpoints. They're either saying, you know, we're overreacting, the country's putting a lockdown to the procedure, or we're obviously make, taking the correct measures, doing putting all or adhering to social distancing. A lot of people are comparing the stats to flu, and therefore they think, especially in the UK, that it's an overreaction. What are your thoughts on comparing it to the seasonal flu and how? different are they? Well, in in many ways, the transmission is similar. It's it's largely through droplet spread or aerosols. And the the virus can survive for quite a long period of time on surfaces. So to that extent, the method of transmission is pretty much the same as flu. And the the number of cases per uh, infected by by one person who has it are also similar. What what I would say is that our least 
estimate is that the mortality rate is significantly higher than ordinary flu. So that that is a a key difference to it. The other thing that happens is that because it produces a a true pneumonia and the lungs are like a a sponge, they're full of little holes and they've got thin divisions between them with blood vessels flowing in the divisions. So the air comes into the lungs, goes into the little lung sacs and then the oxygen diffuses into the blood and the carbon dioxide comes out. Now, pneumonia, all those little air sacs become full of fluid or or cells and the lungs become stiffer, so the oxygen goes down. Now, it looks like the disease, if you get the severe variant, causes that far more commonly than flu. And then secondarily, if people get over that, there does seem to be this immune reaction, which is beginning to be typified, that that causes further damage. So although it's a a respiratory infection like flu, spread by similar ways, I've got no doubt that it is significantly more severe. I mean, as well, we have to see, I think, the latest figures from Italy. So there's 602 new deaths reported. Yeah, yeah. And what, what, that's, a, that's a question. Why, ha, why is Italy so badly affected? Well, this is what I'm not sure about. Um, I don't think any of us know. It's true to say that they have an older population than many other countries. So their yeah. average age is higher. We know that that's a risk factor. They also have a population that I think is one of the highest smoking populations in the world. Mm-hmm. We don't know how long the virus was circulating before it took off. So it could be that it was just grumbling along and there were some mild cases. But if you remember, one person infects two. If there were 10 people with it, that would have been 20 on day one. So it takes off very quickly. Yeah. We also have to think about cultural differences. The British usually are fairly standoffish. <laughs> We, we we maintain as a measure of social comfort sort of an arm's length when we talk to people. But the, the Italians are much closer. So yep. there could be factors like that. The genetic factors, their, their makeup, I don't think we know enough about. I was looking at the expression of various genes and it's only really just beginning to be studied at the moment. So it, it could well be that it was creeping along slowly, but there were more cases and suddenly took off. It could be the social factors, which are hugely important. There may well be genetic differences. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, I've, I've heard definitely that the the, uh, the age, average age is certainly a big factor. What are the figures currently that we consider to be uh, a risk factor? Anyone above the age of 70 and with any underlying conditions? Or Well, I, I, th- I think... Again, this is quite difficult um, because the the data which I'm most familiar with is the UK data. And we only are testing at the moment people who have severe disease, those that go into hospital and require support. So you you can certainly say that probably from the mid-60s, the risk of death increases directly related to the virus. But what has to be remembered is that it it can strike at any age. There was a 21-year-old fit and well person died today. Uh, I think Many doctors, younger doctors in Iran, I think, have have lost their lives. So age is certainly a factor. As I mentioned before, raised blood pressure seems to be a significant factor. That might tie into the genetic awareness. Diabetes, cardiovascular disease and obesity. We honestly are not more sure at the moment about those factors. Mm 
This episode of 20 Minute Fitness is brought to you by Tonal, the smartest home gym with a built-in personal trainer that replaces every machine in the weight room. Having a convenient, personalized instructor-led workout at home that also keeps track of every single move you make is what we all dream of. Well, with Tonal, it is more than possible. Tonal doesn't only provide you with a personalized workout regimen, but also keeps track of all your different movements and how much you've lifted in a given workout. For example, during my first couple of workouts with Tonal, I've lifted on average between 10 to 15,000 pounds in a 30 minute session, which is quite impressive as it compares with what I would normally lift in a 45 to 60 minute session at the gym. Tonal really pushes you to go beyond your comfort zone. And what I find particularly motivating is the fact that Tonal learns about you and your fitness level. Based on your workout performance, Tonal scores your strengths and breaks it down into upper body, core, and lower body. Over time, the machine then tells you how much and where exactly your strengths has been improving. You can now try Tonal 30 days risk-free and get a complete gym experience right inside your home. Just visit www.tonal.com and receive $100 off the smart accessories when you use promo code 20FIT at checkout. That's www.tonaltonal.com, promo code 20FIT, 20FIT. So what can we do to increase our chances of not catching the virus apart from maintaining the safe social distance? Because I believe you have some figures for us on how it's spread via droplets such as coughing and sneezing. Yeah, well, I, I mentioned at the beginning that our best estimate was that one person with the infection on average would infect 2.2 other people. And really, social distancing, minimizing social contact is the absolute must do. I was looking at the news this morning and I saw the London Tube or it could be the Hong Kong mass transit and they're still packed because what absolutely packed. If you cough, you cough droplets out at about 50 miles an hour. If you sneeze, you sneeze droplets out at about 200 miles an hour. Now, those large droplets that you sneeze, probably can't quite see them, on average will carry about two meters. So this is where the stand at least six feet away from people has come. But there's also a lot of other droplets that are produced and they're much smaller. They they tend to be in the range of one to three micrometers. And they can stay in the air for prolonged periods of time and the virus can remain viable in the air for up to about three hours. And each one of those droplets, the small ones, could contain 10,000 viruses. So the physical distancing and limiting your exposure by by keeping two meters away and trying to limit exposure to individuals to 15 minutes is going to be one of the primary prevention strategies for the population. Now, I guess what we can do individually is not rocket science either. So we've said that a lot of it is droplet spread. So person to person, people coughing and sneezing. We used to have old campaigns in the UK, catch it, or was it catch it, kill it, bin it, sort of So there's matters of etiquette using tissues or coughing into the crook of your elbow. So those are definite things. Now, the next way of transmission of the disease is is largely through the hands touching the face and transferring it towards the respiratory mucosa or skin, if you like. And it's quite interesting because, again, estimates are variable, but probably the virus can survive at typical temperatures of of 20 to 
22 degrees for up to 72 hours on plastic or steel surfaces, probably 24 hours on things like cardboard. It's, it's probably going to be less on clothing. We're, we're not sure. But this second route of touching something, a door handle or a countertop with your hand and then touching your face is the sort of secondary route of transmission. So rigorous hand hygiene and actually probably soap and water with a, with a decent hand washing technique. Uh, your listeners will be able to just Google that and see many sites on, that advise on how to wash the hands adequately. But the, the soap doesn't kill the virus, but what it does with wash, rinsing under running water for more than 20 seconds is physically removes it. Now, you've probably been into supermarkets recently and you have probably haven't seen antibacterial hand gel or antiseptic, antibacterial antiseptic wipes for ages now. Most likely, uh, alcohol gels, hand sanitizers are less good than adequate hand washing. They don't physically remove the virus, just sloshing on some alcohol, but probably the alcohol gels, if they're in contact with the skin for at least a minute, will will tend to kill the virus. So the secondary prevention is rigorous hand hygiene, avoid touching the face. We touched on counters and door handles and things like that being uh, a reservoir of infection. And we would recommend that you wipe down hard surfaces, either with uh, a, a gel or 60% alcohol uh, adequately, or 0.5% hydrogen peroxide or bleach. And that does inactivate the virus probably within about a minute. On a, on a side note, um, just I've seen obviously the supermarkets where I'm staying at the moment, they're sort of a, practicing a one-in-one-out policy. Is that the same for you at the moment? Yeah, it's not so much the numbers. It's, it's about maintaining that distance. Yeah. So I, I was quite shocked in, in the UK, a lot of our supermarkets were being very good because they, they gave dedicated shopping hours to NHS staff. But the place was so busy, they were queuing out the door and the shops are absolutely full of people. So the, the most basic thing, which is maintaining that distance, couldn't be maintained. Yeah. I did go briefly to a shop this morning and I was greeted at the door by somebody who held me back till somebody came out. And that's not so much about numbers, but it's about the distancing. Yeah, well, I found on our, on our daily walk we're allowed in the UK that you really do see people at the moment adhering to that. And they'll step, to, if, you know, if you're going down one path, for example, people will step to the side to maintain that two-meter distance. And that, that is probably the single most critical thing that we can do at this stage. I, I think your listeners should really take that on board. What about masks? Because obviously I was in Thailand at the start of the year and I commented on the fact that you know it sort of seemed to be kicking off there before it started hitting the US, Italy, the UK. When I went to the airport, we were, you know, we had to walk through a, a thermal camera to see if we had a temperature. And but the thing I th thought was that obviously all the masks were sold out, but we would then see people taking off their masks to eat we'd see you know gaps between their mouth and the mask but are they are they ineffective well there's different forms of mask technology so the typical one that you will see will be a, a sort of a fluid resistant surgical mask that oblong with the pleated paper with the two loops of plastic 
that, that, or, or string that go over the ears. And there's a bit of wire at the top that you bend to fit your nose uh, and try and keep it in place. Now, in reality, those are designed to reduce splashes. So in many ways, if you've got a disease with a cough, it's going to stop the big droplets coming out from you. But there's still going to be the aerosols. So in general terms, if, if you're going to be in close proximity, possibly one of these surgical masks is best worn by the sufferers. <laughs> because the, the, the small droplets will possibly still escape. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and by wearing one, you're protecting other people. Yeah. I'm not so sure that they offer that much protection to the, the well individual. In, in general terms, if you, if you have to get within, social, uh, within a meter of somebody, so I have to examine people, as long as they haven't got an active cough, and as long as I'm not doing anything that generates an aerosol, a fine mist, they are probably adequate. However, they don't provide the protection that you need if you're going to be intensively improved, uh, exposed. So I think in summary, they, they probably protect people from cases. So if somebody's coughing or sneezing, it will stop the droplets. It may reduce the risk to asymptomatic people. But actually, a mask worn by anybody else doesn't offer a lot of protection. And as you comment, people take them off, they wear them many times. Once that mask becomes saturated or, or thoroughly dirty, it probably loses most of its protection anyway. So what can we do in the comfort of our own home to ensure that we're you know, remaining fit and healthy, apart from social distancing and everything like that we discussed? Well, I mean, this is one of the interesting things. If we go back to things that we can do immediately, we've talked about um, keeping our coughs and sneezes to ourselves. We've talked about maintaining distance. We've talked about wiping surfaces. It's going to be a good idea to have a good flow of air through the building. Keep the windows open. Because if you remember, I said that those fine droplets can hang around for hours and hours and hours. So if you're in a room with all the windows closed and somebody's sneezed, it seems from first principles better to have the air changed periodically than sit in a stale environment. What we can do at home? Well, the first thing is stay at home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We've talked about social distancing, but staying at home will reduce your risk quite dramatically. Staying at home with with your immediate family that has been exposed to you all the time. And it's really quite surprising how many people can work at home. And I think this this may lead into some changes in the future. Well, this is something we were just touching on before, wasn't it? Um, I said I don't necessarily think it's a fair test of the remote working philosophy because obviously in certain times like this, there will be, I think, a reduction in productivity. So I don't necessarily think it's the, the right test for remote working, although I do think the remote working will penetrate more businesses coming out of this. I, I, I tend to agree with you because, as I said, I've, I've been a physician in war zones, in epidemics for 35 years, and I walk around at the moment, not not worried, but finding it all rather strange. And I will agree that my productivity is lower than it would normally be. However, a, as a family physician GP, I'm used to people traveling to my office parking in the car park, waiting in the waiting room and coming to see me for a set period of time. But what I'm finding is that at least 80% of people with chronic diseases and things like that, I really don't need to see. 
I can manage their problems either on the telephone or by video links quite adequately. And it, it's the organizations, if you like, our regulators or the lawgivers that actually seem to be maintaining our uh, way of doing things. What's quite encouraging is that, that groups of doctors are coming together and sharing the effort. There's more exchange of information. So that's just in one tiny little industry. I think that within a relatively short period of time, this could be seen working differently, working remotely. This could be seen as the norm. And when you consider that in some of our major cities, you're already seeing falling levels of nitrous oxide. We're seeing perhaps falling levels of carbon dioxide. Actually, that might be a silver lining in the way ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, it reduces rent cost and everything like that as well. For yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it, 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 it's different. It's strange. I think we can either worry about it or we can get on and practice in the new way. Warts are all. Maybe it's not quite as good. But actually, for 80% of my work, it works quite well. Well, I mean, I had a, you know, a physio the other day. And obviously, that did would usually require some form of actually checking out the injury, make, you know, pressing on different parts to see which part of the injury hurt. However, because I was familiar with the exercises already, I'm now practicing my rehab at home and I haven't felt like I've needed to go in and, uh, and you know, I've just been giving them over a phone call and can just get on with them now. And you're dead right in terms of rehab. It is often about people doing the work themselves. So perhaps you need the exercises demonstrating yeah, to exactly. you or talking through, but actually it's it's doing the the rehab yourself that really will get you better. So that that's another example. It, it it's fascinating. I mean, what we do need to make sure. I mean, we we're seeing Netflix having to degrade its quality and and various other channels having to reduce their, their quality because we haven't got enough bandwidth. And I guess one of the big things to come out may be that we need to make our electronic architecture much more robust and that may enable things to go ahead in the future yeah 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 so what else can you do at home um the science behind this is very very early on so it, it's tempted to suggest to get as fit and healthy as you can and build up a, a good strong immune system now there's been plenty of small studies in the past demonstrating that some things that we can do will improve our immune system. So there's a little plant called Echinacea that for many, many years has been recommended for a period of six to eight weeks to boost the immune system in defense of colds. I think in one of your other podcasts, you talked about the effect of cold showers. Yep. And the observation that exposure to cold water seemed to me that people got less respiratory infections. Zinc lozenges have been shown to reduce the colonization of the, the sort of throat mucosa or skin by cold viruses. However, what, what I have to say at this stage is that some of these things are not harmful, but I have no evidence to suggest that they will be of any help whatsoever against uh, SARS-CoV-2 or, or COVID-19, but they're not going to be harmful. Conversely, there's plenty of evidence that megadoses of supplements are harmful. So zinc can be quite toxic in overdosage. Vitamin C, if you, if you have more than about one and a half grams a day, can have adverse effects on the kidney function and, and things like that. 
So I, I can't recommend that people take megadoses, but maybe uh, uh, within the RDA or slightly above, maybe things like cold showers. I think what does stand people in good stead is to maintain their general health during this difficult period uh, as best they can. I've seen many videos that have been sent to me of uh, before and after quarantine uh, <laughs> sort of videos. So there's there's a, a, a fit person dancing before quarantine and then suddenly there's somebody who's piled on 50 pounds and uh, after quarantine. Yeah. And it does seem that obesity is a, a risk factor. So maintaining general fitness as best you can. And that, that can be, depending on the restrictions that you put on, it could be going for a run or a bike ride or normal activities like that, but maintaining your distance from others. It could be that you go in the garden. It could be that you put trying to get you to do your kettlebell workouts uh yeah okay i'll dig in the garden i'll <laughs> dig in the garden and i walk enough anyway up and down the corridors zumba classes on the net now that 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 seems to be a good way of doing things maintenance of sleep getting adequate sleep there are many restorative factors of sleep that enable our general health in terms of supplements as i said not really uh, as long as they're within safe levels maybe but there's plenty of evidence that maintaining a good mixed diet and that includes the, the, the major food groups carbohydrates proteins and fats there's a lot of interest in the gut and the biome in terms of maintaining our general health. And that means that we should eat a wide variety of different fruits and vegetables every day. Organic produce, not processed foods. Well, in terms of what we can measure, there's probably not a lot of difference between some of the organics and some of the mass-produced things. But it, it, the key thing is to eat a wide variety of different products and vegetables. Conscious of the time now, so I want the final question to be, what does flattening the curve globally look like? Apart from, does it does it follow the sort of customs that are going on in the UK at the moment about full isolation? Because obviously some countries are behind others. Obviously Australia just closed their borders. I think New Zealand closed their borders. Poland closed their borders. But is it maintaining full isolation or? Well, okay. If if you take my one case, infecting two point two, infecting four and a half, infecting eight point eight. The the main purpose of flattening the curve is to enable the various health services to cope with the demand. So if you suddenly had 100,000 people seriously ill needing hospital admission, I doubt that there's any health service in the world that could deal with that. However, if you had, say, 10,000, but for slightly longer, then it may be that you could deal with that 10,000. Most of the 10,000 would get better and enable more people to come in and be treated. So it's, it's really just, if you like, drawing it out slightly uh, and making it less intense. I guess the worry that we have is how long do we do it? Yeah. So I'm watching China with intense interest because they did really well in locking down early and rigorously. And as you're aware, uh, although they were the epicenter of the disease early on, their cases actually went down fairly quickly. And there were very few, as of yesterday, there were very few new cases. So that that's sort of bringing it down. The worry is that if we relax those 
lockdowns, restrictions and things like that. So let's think, Wuhan, I forget how many people it was. Was it 60 million people in Wuhan out of about a billion people? So if they let them all travel again, is it going to take off again? So flattening the curve is really just a way to enable health services to have half a chance to deal with the ill people. It doesn't do away with the disease. And the, yeah. and the risk is that the second it's relaxed, you get a second wave. So it is, yeah, exactly, definitely. Just a question of keep maintaining or adhering to professional health advice, washing hands, keeping social distance for now. And... Yeah, I mean, I think that the virus so far seems quite stable. We think that in most circumstances, if you've had it, and you've got to remember that the vast majority of people who have it will have very mild disease, that they'll be immune to it. I guess we won't know until sometime down the line when we see what actually happens, whether people can, and I believe they can really get it a second time, and until we have effective vaccines. But that may be a year or 18 months down the line. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a waiting game. We'll have to wait and see. Well, Davey, thank you very much for coming on the show to talk to me. Uh, it's been very useful, I think, for our listeners as well, just to have someone with some professional medical experience coming on and uh, shedding some light on the situation and obviously telling us how we can best prevent ourselves from contracting the virus. So thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome indeed, Charlie. And I will speak to you later today, probably. Okay. All the best. Stay well. Bye-bye. Thank you. Once again, a massive thank you to my dad for coming on the show. I really do hope you found that valuable and he's helped shed some light on the coronavirus and how you can increase your chances of not contracting the virus, obviously adhering to all the professional medical advice out there. So we do strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to listen to the advice out there, listen to this podcast, listen to what my dad's saying about hand hygiene, about binning your tissues once you cough into them, being conscious of people being around you. Lots of information here for you to take away and hopefully this will help you prevent the spread of the infection to other people and also to ensure that you keep fit and healthy as well so a massive thank you to my dad again i really hope that this has been a good way for you to learn about coronavirus Uh, and again we have one more episode of our home workout so make sure you check out that as we should all still be thinking about maintaining our physical health and fitness as my dad said in the podcast so that shouldn't be back of mind at the moment we need to ensure that we're keeping fit and healthy and also adhering to the, the advice out there so thank you once again and we'll be back very soon with another episode of 20 minute fitness